Well, this weekend, we begin a six-week series called A Trip Around the Sun. And on the way out, uh, Laura and I have a little gift for you. It's a copy of a book that releases this week. Uh, Now, I've uh, written a few books, but this one is unique because I co-authored it with my friend and spiritual father, Dick Foth. Now, here's the deal. A book, to me, is a way that we can spend four or five hours together, and if you're a slow reader, we can spend more time than that. Uh, How would you like to hang out with Dick Foe for four or five hours? Well, I want to give you an opportunity to do that, and so it's a gift from us to you. Um, Why would you call a year a year when you could call it a trip around the sun? Because that's what it is. We'll travel uh, 584 million miles around the sun this year. Now, that sounds like an adventure to me. Uh, In a nutshell, uh, this book is about choosing adventure. It's a choice, and I'm so excited to begin this series with none other than Dr. Dick Foth. Would you give him a huge welcome as he comes? Thank you. Hello. What a great weekend. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Now, Mark hasn't taken very many trips around the sun. I mean, just (laughs) 40, 45, something like that. I'm on my 74th trip around the sun. And... It's just crazy. (laughs) The Bible is a storybook. It's the story of God and man, and it's the stories of many, many people. And this book, A Trip Around the Sun, details at least two stories, plus some others. What do we have that's like God? You know, God's way up there or way out there or his thoughts are not my thoughts and his ways are not my way. What do we have that's like God? Well, we have our story. Whatever else we bring to the party, every person here this weekend has a story, your unique story. It's the one place in life, maybe the only place in life that you and I don't have to compete. Everybody gets an A. Right from, how many would want an A? Everybody gets an A. I had a college professor who stood up at the start of a semester and said, everybody in this class has an A and you get to whittle away at it all semester. Okay? <laughs> well, when it's your story, you can't whittle away at it. When it's your story, before you tell it, you have an A, and after you tell it, you have an A. And kids have stories. You say, I know, when I was a kid, I fabricated a lot of stuff. I got stories. (laughs) They say that children start framing their experience by the time they're two. I told some folks the other day, I was, Ruth and I like to ride Amtrak. We like to go on the train, and we we had gone to California from Colorado. We were on our way back, and coming out of Sacramento, we were in the dining car, and it's it's a rolling bed and breakfast. They just put you with whomever in the dining car, and so we're sitting with a grandma and her nine and a half year old grandson. And so I sort of engaged him. He was sort of quiet. He seemed a little shy, and I said, hi, I'm Dick. And I shook his hand. He said, all of a sudden, he came alive. 
He said, I'm Andrew. I said, Andrew, where are you going? He said, Indianapolis. I said, really? Why are you going to Indianapolis? He said, well, I'm going to see my uncle. His name is Michael. His name is Michael. I have a brother named Michael. My grandpa is Michael. And I have a friend named Michael. And then he looked at me and said, it's a Michael apocalypse. <laughs> You're nine and a half. You don't even know what that means. What do you mean? that? It... And so I said, are you engaged in sports? He said, yeah, I like baseball and football and basketball. I said, are you pretty studly? You're really built? He said, yeah, I've got a four-pack. You know, not a six-pack, he's got a four-pack. I said, that's funny, i got a keg. You know, I... But there's something about your story that when you share it with me or share it with each other, it opens up all kinds of possibilities. My earliest memory, 70 years ago, three and a half years old, standing on Fifth Avenue in New York City with my parents who were on their way after World War II as missionary educators to India. It was a huge day in New York City. The armistice had been signed, Germany had surrendered about a month before, and this was the day the supreme allied commander of all forces in Europe, Dwight David Eisenhower, who would be president of the United States seven years later, was coming home. The largest parade ever in the history of New York City. Four million people on the streets, the parade wound 37 miles through all the boroughs, and it was a, it was a moment. Well, it was, it was this moment. This arrival by air begins a record-breaking ovation. New York and General Eisenhower. With New York's Mayor LaGuardia, the commander of victory in Europe proceeds to the climax of his welcome home. New York is really set for a triumph. That must be the key to Brooklyn. Central Park, tens of thousands of school children, miles of them along the line of the drive through the park. Down Fifth Avenue, through immense cheering crowds. Lady, control your enthusiasm. He personifies victory in the bitter war against the brutal Nazi enemy. New York's finest came by in their dress blues, followed by marching bands. And then Eisenhower came by us, standing up, waving at the crowd as my father took 16-millimeter color movies of Ike going by us. And then he, as he passed by, he swings the camera around, and there's my mom and my sis, and the little guy down in the corner I know it's hard to believe. I don't know where the cuteness went. I have no idea. But there we are, proof positive. Within the next two years, the adventure for me began. We got on a steamship called the SS Gripsholm, sailed across to Europe, changed ships in Alexandria, Egypt, and went on to India. I almost died in New York City of scarlet fever epidemic. They thought I was dying. It went into a mastoid infection in my ear and my 
And my parents sent letters to, night letters, what they called, you know, no emails, nothing like that, night letters to West Coast churches that were supporting us. And the doctor called the day of the operation because they said, we have to do surgery on, on Dickie because this could go into his brain. It'll kill him. At the very least, he'll be deaf. And at 5.30 in the morning, the doctor called and said, you know, I've just taken another set of x-rays. I have two sets of x-rays in my hands here. This was taken three days ago, which shows the virulent infection. And I'm looking at the one I just took, and there's nothing wrong with this boy. You can come and take him home. It, because the adventure that you take when you follow Jesus has all kinds of pieces to it. And then two years later, I'm in South India, and I have malignant malaria and almost die. And there's a knock on the door where we are, and there stands a single... Anglican lady missionary saying, I was praying, you prayer circle people, I was praying and I felt like I was supposed to come pray for Dickie. She came in, put her hand on me. I'd been delirious for three nights, three days with 106 temperature and my fever broke that night. Uh, my sister and I used to take the train with my parents up into the tea plantations to this school called Hebron. Here's a, here's a shot of that. The kid in the window, still very cute, right there. <laughs> that was my journey. My wife, Ruth, had a very different journey. She was brought up on a farm in the San Joaquin Valley of California. Her adventure was not getting on steamships. Her adventure was going over to bake apple pies with her grandmother across the peach orchard. Grab a peach on the way, get a few grapes as you pass by, you know, all of that kind of stuff. My view of journey, my view of trip, if you will, has almost always been outward in a lot of ways, going and doing and that sort of thing. And Ruth, who is more contemplative than I, her journey has been inward because journeys go both ways. A trip around the sun is an adventure story. It's the old guy, young guy story. It's Mark and Dick, Batterson and Foth. He's the old guy. And, uh, no, I don't. he's not. He's not. But we met here in 1994 in Washington, D.C., where these two rivers come together, the Anacostia and the Potomac River. But the core story behind this book comes from folks who met at another river 2,000 years ago called the Jordan in Palestine. That's where the adventure really begins. So in John, the first chapter, 35th through 39th verses, this is how it reads. This is John the Baptist who is coming there. John the Baptist is a relative of Jesus, six months older. He's got his own group. And the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking, or what do you want? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come, you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. So here, is, here are two guys who choose to follow Jesus. That's interesting. Two guys choose to follow Jesus. They ask him this question, where are you staying? It, it's curious. They're curious about where he's staying. 
you note they don't ask him a philosophical question or a theological question or they don't ask him a science question. They just, you get the sense that if they could hang out, those kinds of questions would be answered. And he doesn't tell them where he's staying. All he says is come. You'll see. He tosses down the challenge. The challenge is to go with him and they would see. I think along our way, when we are introduced to Jesus in some way or some form, that challenge shows up somewhere. I'm 17 years old. I graduated high school. And um, I'm at Cal Berkeley my freshman year. And I, I've told you before and I've told others before, I was sowing my wild oats. There weren't very many oats and they weren't very wild by today's standards. But I was, sort of, I was a church guy and I was sort of wandering off because Cal Berkeley in 1959 was cool. You know, Fidel Castro had just gone to just gone to Germany and the, the states of Hawaii and Alaska were going to become states that year and Elvis was in Germany and I went to Cal. <laughs> and I went to a missions conference and afterwards they had a prayer time and I was struggling because I was torn with which adventure did I want to take, like the mini adventures that ended up nowhere that I would create or the big adventure with Jesus. And I went to a place and I knelt down and I opened my Bible and I'm not a a fan necessarily of opening your Bible and going bam like that. But it was an upstairs area in this little church. And there was a, a cleaner's next door with flashing neon lights. And the Venetian blinds were open. And a strip of light fell across a verse in Matthew that said, If the salt, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt has become tainted or lost its savor, how will the earth be salted? And it was like Jesus threw down the challenge and said, Make a choice, folks. You're going to choose what you do, or you're going to choose adventuring with me. One of the cool things about this text that I really like is, is the question Jesus didn't ask. What he, what he didn't say to them, or the statement he didn't make to them was, if you can guess who I am, then you can be in my group. He just said, come along, and you'll discover. You'll find out. He was calling them to the greatest adventure they'd ever go on to discover life, to experience friendship, to get stretched, to get challenged, and to build a friendship on the journey. The journey, for me particularly, not exclusively by any sense, but it's the place I start, is about the who. One of the chapters in this book is who is more important than what? Who is more important than what? Way before Dr. Seuss gave us Horton Here's a Who. How many of you know Horton Here's a Who? You remember that whole little community there? The scriptures talk to us about who. Who God is, who we are, who we can be, what's important. What's important in our lives is the who connection. Think about your life. Think about your life. The people in your life. Think about grandmothers. I asked some older guys in this town, older than I, in this town, who were the people that left their fingerprints on your soul when you were growing up? And to a person in the room, they said their grandmothers. Parents, aunts, uncles, coaches. I've been watching the NFL draft. Any of you guys been watching the NFL draft? You know, I'm a Duck fan. I'm, I'm excited Mariota's going to the Titans. I don't know why. But, the, but in, the, in, the NFL, in the NFL draft... The coaches of the college guys who go in the draft, the Urban Myers, the Jimbo Fishers, the Mark Elfrich, these guys, 
they have to be excited because coaches in our culture, as someone well said, are the tribal chieftains of our culture. You have teachers. All of those kinds of people shape our lives. Point number one, very simple point. We are molded by people we trust. On the journey, on this trip, on our trips around the sun, we are molded by people we trust. I was doing a men's retreat in Kansas City some years ago, and, and they had it structured so that you sat at, the, at a table that was named after an NFL football team. I was the Philadelphia Eagles table, and I was with some guys. And the question was, who is it in your life that left their fingerprints on your soul when you were young? And this one guy, you know, guys were saying this person and that person, this one guy said, I was raised up on the border of Minnesota, or excuse me, on the border of Minnesota and Canada. My father was a railroader, and uh, it was my brother and I and my parents, and it was sort of like a log cabin. And my mom would get up every morning at 4.30 to cook him breakfast, and she'd stoke the wood in the little stove and uh, she'd open the door to my brother's room and I, we were upstairs, and that warm air would start coming up, and then she'd start making breakfast, and she'd cook flapjacks, and she'd do eggs and sausage and bacon and, you know, hash brown. I'm salivating just telling you this. And it's just, you know, doing all the scalding coffee. They'd do all this stuff. And she said then she'd sit at the table and read him scripture out loud. He said, my father was not a believer. He, he wasn't just... Wasn't, wasn't a Jesus follower, and, and my mom was, and so she just read him scripture, the Psalms, and all kinds of stuff, and she had a very strong voice, and all these aromas are coming up the stairs, and, and I hear my mother's voice, and the scripture is coming up, and there's a smell of bacon, and you know, if the Bible smelled like bacon, we'd all have it memorized, you know, it's just that, it, it, it's just that, that sense. It was interesting as he was telling this, as he was telling this story, it was just Emotive, if you will. The who in your life can make all the difference. I was a young pastor, 24 years old, in Urbana, Illinois, University of Illinois. And the year after we did the church plant, nine months after, a high school football coach moved to town. His name was Paul McGarvey. He wasn't a big guy. He was a backfield high school football coach. But he had this huge heart for Jesus. He loved football. And he... And he loved the church, and he would come, and, and we'd do stuff together. He'd do two-a-day drills, and we're trying to build this building, and he'd come over, and we'd paint, and neither of us were very good painters. We got paint on ourselves more than we got on the wall, and he was always there. And when we started taking Mexico trips, he'd never gone to Mexico, and I'd gone a few times, and we started going on Mexico trips together. And, and McGarvey, his name was Paul McGarvey, Paul McGarvey left his imprint on my life in a powerful way. We would talk about everything as we painted walls late at night. We'd talk about life and family and challenges and education and all of those things. The who in your life makes a tremendous difference. And Jesus turns to these two guys and says, come on. One of the things we sort of slide by in Scripture is that when Jesus sent out the disciples, whether it was the 12 or the 71, he sent them out two by two. We say, that's cool. That's like the FBI buddy system or whatever, you know. But why would he do that? Why would he send people out two by two? If we only had one person come up here, for example, to do the homeless thing, that would be terrifying. It's scary enough just to go do it because it's unknown territory to us. But when you two by two has to do with the message. Here's the message. 
Jesus in John 15 says it this way, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. There's some powerful words in Scripture. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Some powerful words in Scripture like this. Repentance, redemption, submission, kindness, grace, sufficient, sacrifice. How, how about this one? Friend. I don't think there's any more powerful word in all of the English language or the German or the Spanish, whatever, then friend, that connection, whether you're single or married, friend is the basis for how one can do life. That's at the heart of it. So when Jesus sends them out two by two and says, now, here's the deal. I'm going to do all the, the cross thing. I'm going to do all that so you can love each other because that's the message. By this, the whole world will know you're following me if you love them. No, it doesn't say that. It says the whole world will follow me, will, will know that you follow me if you love each other. If that's the message, it's a little hard to do that just by yourself. It isn't that you can't say the words by yourself, but you model it in some way. I was telling some friends the other day that, that when, when our kids were small, now all of our kids are in their 40s. So our youngest is 42, our oldest is going to be 50, and Pastor Mark, he's right there in the middle. He's not like biological, but he's right there in the, in the middle, you know. And uh, when, they, when they were small, Ruth was in the kitchen one day, and she was washing dishes. We didn't have a, a dishwasher, and she was in there, and I snuck up behind her and grabbed her around the waist, you know. And, and she just said, oh, Dick, stop. Good playing. But I just hung on. You, know, you got to hang on. You can't just let go. Just <laughs> Just because she's swatting you, you got, you got to just, you know, because we're in this together. And so pretty soon she turned around and she put her arms around me and I got a little soap dripping down my back. We're just snuggling. And, and all of a sudden, we felt hands down by our knees. And our two smallest ones, Susanna, who was one of the, co the, the uh, ghostwriter here, helped, helped us with this. Uh, she was there and Chris, they were just little, little people. And... and uh, you know, they, they had heard things get quiet. I think they stuck their heads around the corner and said, the giants are doing that again, you know? And, and, and so they, they just, and I thought they were trying to get us apart. And it dawned, it took me a little time because I'm slow. It dawned on me, they wanted a slice of the action. When you see people who love each other, it is hard to keep your eyes off of them. When you see people who really like each other and who hang out, it's attractive there's this idea from Jesus is profound. He says, you're not servants, you're friends because I tell you my dad's secrets. You got the family goods. When you hang out with me, this is how it works. There's some powerful designations for Jesus. Savior, Redeemer, Judge, Creator, King, Lamb of God, Lion of Judah, I Am, all kinds of I Ams, the door, the vine, the shepherd. But the first one, this friend. Friend is the access, I think, to all those other ones that when we walk with him, we discover that he's Savior. We discover that he's Redeemer. We discover he's Creator. 
We have lots of relational connections in this space. Lots of, we got siblings, we got parents, we got spouses, we got colleagues, we got classmates, we got roommates, we got partners, we got employees, we got coworkers. But friend is one of the most powerful ideas you will ever find. Mark and I, in part, wrote this because we were friends. I, uh, when we were at this little church, it was growing. Now we're past 50. Now we're up to 200. We used to have Sunday night services. And one Sunday night service, I opened it up and I said, uh, do you have any prayer needs? And a 25, 26-year-old guy over here raised his hand and said, I'd like to pray for Paul Todd. Well, Paul Todd was 65 years old, 40 years his senior, but they had become friends at a breakfast they had gone to. Paul Todd had been a tank commander in the Second World War under George Patton. He had fought from North Africa all the way up through Italy into France, finally after four years blown out of his tank, spent 13 months in the hospital, still had shrapnel in him. He was a two-pack-a-day guy. He had emphysema. He had a lot of struggles. I said, well, is Paul in the hospital? He said, no, I don't think so. I said, well, is... Is Paul at home? Is he, is he struggling physically? He said, I, I don't think so. I said, well, is he, is he grappling with depression? Because he had a hard time. He had a hard time talking about the war without weeping. And, and he said, I, I don't think so. And, you know, I'm having this conversation in front of 200 people. <laughs> Finally, I said, well, Jim, why do, you want to, why do you want to pray for him? And he just grinned at me and said, well, I just like him. <laughs> well, that throws a pastor off. You... <laughs> Like, you got to be dying of something. We can't just be tossing things in here because we like people. And, and people say, so, so why did you write, why did you do this with Mark? Because he's the writer. I'm, just, I'm the mouse on the elephant here just riding along, you know. And say, why did you do that? And I say, well, I just like him. <laughs> what, what is it when somebody walks up to you and says, I like you, that is so profound? You know, because our tendency when somebody says that is, well, you know, you don't know me. You know, if you knew me, I don't even like me most of the time. I, why would you like me? <laughs> but the other thing we say is, why? I want to know why. Why you like we? We want to know why we're worth like. That's the reason. One of the reasons to read scripture, because God tells you why He likes you. I'm lying in bed with Ruth years ago. She's lying right there. I'm just fading off. Some of you married guys, you get this. I'm just fading off into that. And just as I was fading off, I said, love you, hon. And she said, how come? <laughs> and I'm clawing back up out of the darkness because you got to say good stuff. You know, I've seen guys get beat up horribly when they don't say good stuff. You got to come up with something when you're in that moment, you know. That's right, isn't it, Pastor Mark? You got it. Yes, uh-huh. here in D.C. for 15 years, and I'd call a Senate office, say I'd like to have an appointment with the senator or the congressman or the guy at the Pentagon, whoever it was, and almost always the response would be, who are you with? The person would be instructed to say, what company are you with? What's this about? Are you a lobbyist? So forth. And I would say, oh, I'm, I'm just a friend. There is no such thing as just a friend. A friend is close. A friend goes beyond title or guarders of the guards at the door. It's access. It's a ticket. I was having breakfast with some ambassadors some years ago, and, and somebody was supposed to give the little talk, just a two- or three-minute talk. 
and they didn't show up and I had to give the talk and I was sort of whining in my talk about, you know, this is a town in, a, in an arena, Washington DC and its environs. You don't want to throw your credentials on the table because somebody's going to trump you. You know, somebody's got more money, they got more connections, they graduated from a bigger or better school, they've got all this, then they've got the history, somebody's going to trump you. And when I finished, a former attorney general who was in the president's cabinet said, I just have one caveat to that, Dick, and that is, if you throw your credentials on the table and they say, friend, everybody wins. Everybody wins. And Jesus says, Come on, follow me. You want to know where I hang? You'll see. Let's go this way. He invites me into his friendship. Point two, when we're friends to people, we look like Jesus. When we're friends to people, we look like Jesus. That's the thing that got Jesus crucified, got him killed. Wrong friends. That was the eight with the wrong. In his culture at that time, if you eat with somebody, total identification. Because sitting at table with people, you know, you come to my house, I make some money, Ruth cooks some food, we're sitting at our table eating, you know, roast beef and mashed potatoes and string beans with the little onions and mushroom stuff they put in that casserole, and, and then she brings her apple pie for it. And, and when you're eating, it's not just that you're eating her good cooking. What you're really doing is eating our lives. You're ingesting our lives because that's our life that we've put into that. In some way. And Jesus, Jesus identified so much with these people. He ate with them, and it got him killed. This is how it reads in Matthew eleven nineteen: The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, and sinners. He's a friend of sinners. I love it that he's a friend of sinners. That's <laughs> like one of the coolest thoughts in all of Scripture. Why? Because I get in. <laughs> That's me. He's talking about me. Doesn't have my name there. We could write my name. He's a friend of both, a.k.a. sinner. Right? We get in. He knows us, and he still wants us. What? Is that good news or what? And And... Some years ago, I, I tossed this idea out. This, is, this has got to be 25 years ago now because this idea has roiled around in me for a long time. And it's not my thought. It's a biblical thought. Lots of people have it. I was at a church in the Northeast. And at the end of the time, a young 30-ish woman, lovely young woman came up. And it was a very conservative sort of legalistic congregation she was a part of. She came up and she was weeping. She said, I've gone to this church for 30 years, never heard anything like that in my whole life. She had heard she was supposed to be holy and she was supposed to do this and not do that and not do that and not do that. And, and she said, are you telling me that Jesus says it's okay if I'm a friend of sinners? Is that what you're telling me? And, I'm, and I said, no, that's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is that he insists on it. You say, well, you can't just go out there and befriend people who are debauched and all that. Well, you know, you have to be wise. You have to consider the setting. And it wouldn't hurt to go two by two. Just a thought. <laughs> when I came to Washington, D.C., to, to work on the Hill, and by working on the Hill, it wasn't a role that was funded by the government. There was just a thing behind the scenes and... 
we were, we were encouraged to befriend people in leadership because the higher you go, and you know this, those of you in education or health or the military, the higher you go, the more competitive it gets, the closer you play your cards, and you get to the top of the heap. You're leading the charge, and you end up with a 1,000 acquaintances and no friends. Leadership isn't hard because you have to make decisions. Leadership's hard because you don't know who to trust. And so I went to a friend who'd been here a long time, Richard Halverson, chaplain of the Senate, and I'm, and I'm talking to him, and we're sitting in the Senate dining room, and you could, you'll read this in the book, but I'm sitting in the Senate dining room, and I'm, I'm a kid from East Oakland, California. I'm not used to this. And I'm trying not to gawk. Henry Kissinger's over in the corner back in the, for those of you who were younger, he was a big guy in the day. And, and <laughs> you know, he's over there in the corner, and you got this senator, and who's it's over there, and I'm sitting there. And I, and I said to him, how do you work with senators? How do you do that? You know, because this is a club of 100 that sort of runs a big chunk of the world. And um, he said, well, my first church was in a little town in central California. You really got to want to go there. And, you know, it's just not on the, on the beaten path. He said, I just, um, I went there and mostly it was women in the church and they wanted me to, quote, get their husbands saved, end quote. But these were wildcat oil riggers. They were business guys. They were, and I had to go find them. And after four years, many of them were following Jesus. And I found out two things. When you work with business leaders, you have to go where they are, and you have to respect their time because time is money. And so when I came here, he said, Dick, I'd, I'd meet a man anywhere, anytime, under any circumstance, at his convenience, with no agenda except his. And I said, you've got an agenda. You want that guy to follow Jesus. And he said, oh, no. No, no, that's not my agenda, Dick. That's my life. The difference between whether Jesus is my agenda or my life or whether you're talking to me, the difference between whether Jesus is your agenda, something you have to talk to me about, or your life, it just like oozes out of you, is whether I feel like a target or a friend. Jesus befriends us and where I'm out here in the wilderness trying to do the best I can, and you come along, and you're following Jesus to the Father's house. You, you know where you're going. You don't know all the pieces, you don't, but you've got, you're following him. He's saying, come, you'll see, and you say, right, I'm with you. And I'm out here just trying to do my best, be a good dad, make a buck, and all that kind of stuff. And you befriend me. We start hanging at, at Starbucks or Ebenezer's or one of these places, or we go to this and that and the other. And if you befriend me, I automatically start following Jesus. Oh, I don't have a clue who he is. I only know you. But along the way, when I see how you think and why you make decisions the way you make them and how you treat people, somehow I get attracted to that. My father-in-law, who's now with the Lord, when he, when he passed away, an architect spoke at his funeral and said, Roy Blakely, that's Ruth's dad, is like an elephant said he'd come up and he'd stand beside you. And then he'd just start leaning, just a little bit. <laughs> and you thought you were going that way. He said, and pretty soon you'd be going over that way. You didn't even know you were going that way. It was just his influence in your life because he was your friend. And he said, Roy Blakely's definition of discipleship is make a friend, take him with you. Make a friend, take him with you. Who makes more difference than what? My question for you this weekend is, who made the difference for you?
Who's making the difference for you? Who are you the difference for? Not everyone can play basketball or football or run track. Not just anyone can get a PhD in engineering or be a stellar first grade teacher or a cabinet maker or a graphic artist or an IT specialist or be a gifted salesperson or be great with middle schoolers. Not just anyone can hit high notes or play a mean guitar or have perfect pitch. But anyone and everyone can be a friend. And when that happens, the adventure takes off. Sometimes the adventure is a place, but always, please hear me, always the adventure is a person. Where are you staying, Jesus? Come. You'll see. Are we going someplace? Well, sort of, but we're really going to see someone. I'd like you to meet my dad. I'm going to take you to meet my father. That's what happens when we hear his voice and we choose adventure. This is the way the writer of Proverbs said it, Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. So there. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to show us the way to your place. Thank you that you have saved us from boredom and death. Thank you that you have saved us from boredom, which is death. And for all of the thousands of people who are hearing these words, help them to hear your word most clearly today. When they say to you, where are you going, Jesus? And you say, come, I'll show you. You'll see. And along the way, not only will your life be changed, but it might affect many, many others as we go. Thank you, Jesus, for the adventure. Thank you for choosing us. We choose you back. Amen.